When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger to them and spoke to them harshly. He asked, where do you come from? They answered, from the land of Canaan, to buy grain for food. Joseph recognized his brothers. Whoops, went too far. Then, um, but they did not recognize him. Then Joseph remembered the dreams he had dreamed about them, and he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see if our land is vulnerable. But they exclaimed, no, my lord, your servants have come to buy grain for food. We are all the sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. No, he insisted, but you have come to see if our land is vulnerable. And they replied, your servants are from a family of 12 brothers. We are the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. The youngest is with our father at this time, and one is no longer alive. But Joseph told them, it is just as I said to you, you are spies. You will be tested in this way. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not depart from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. One of you must go and get your brother while the rest of you remain in prison. In this way, your words may be tested to see if you're telling the truth. If not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. He imprisoned them for all for three days. And on the third day, Joseph said to them, do as I say, and you will live for I fear God. If you are honest men, leave one of your brothers here confined in prison while the rest of you go and take grain back for your hungry families. But you must bring your youngest brother to me. Then your words will be verified and you will not die. They did as he said. They said to one another, surely we are being punished because of our brother, because we saw how distressed he was when we, he cried out to us for mercy, but we refused to listen. That is why this distress has come on us. Reuben said to them, didn't I say to you, don't sin against the boy, but you wouldn't listen? So now we must pay for shedding his blood. Now, they did not know that Joseph could understand them, for he was speaking through an interpreter. He turned away from them and wept. When he turned around and spoke to them again, he had Simeon taken from them and tied up before their eyes. Then Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to return each man's money to his sack, and to give them provisions for the journey. His orders were carried out. So they loaded their grain on the donkeys and left. When one of them opened his sack to get feed for his donkey at their resting place, he saw his money in the mouth of the sack. He said to his brother, my money was returned. Here it is in my sack. They were dismayed. They, returned, they turned trembling to one another and said, what in the world has God done to us? They returned to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan and told him all the things that had happened to them, saying, the man, the Lord of the land, spoke harshly to, to us and treated us as if we were spying on the land. But we said to him, we are honest men. We're not spies. We are from a family of 12 brothers. We are the sons of one father. One is no longer alive, and the youngest is with our father at this time in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, This is how I will find out if you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for your hungry households and go. But bring your youngest brother back to me so I will know that you are honest men and not spies. Then I will give your brother back to you, and you may move freely about the land. When they were emptying their sacks, there was each man's bag of money in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bags of money, they were afraid. Their father Jacob said to them, you are making me childless. Joseph is gone, 
Simeon is gone, and now you want to take Benjamin. Everything is against me. Then Reuben said to his father, you may put my two sons to death if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my care, and I will bring him back to you. But Jacob replied, my son will not go down there with you, for his brother is dead, and he alone is left. If an accident happens to him on the journey you have to make, then you will bring down my gray hair in sorrow to the grave. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, in this moment of silence, please speak to us about your word. Lord, thank you for your word. And we ask that you would open our eyes so that we could see what you're showing us. Open our ears to hear what you are saying to us. Open our hearts to believe what you're doing in us and through us with this scripture. Have your way in the preaching of the word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So if I were to uh, get up here and start with a story that involved your great-great-grandparents, even if they were just a, a, a side character in the story, your instinct, I suspect, would be to put yourself in your great-great-grandparents' shoes, no matter what role they were playing in the story. You would be wondering if you inherited the same way of responding to things that started with them. You'd be wondering if you have their strengths and their faults. And that's what I've been encouraging us to do as we read the stories in Genesis, to remember that the people of Israel were hearing stories about their great, 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 great grandparents. They were descendants of these 10 brothers who traveled from Canaan to Egypt in this story. And so as they walk with the brothers to Egypt and stand before Joseph, most of the Israelites in the wilderness are putting themselves in the brothers' shoes. And if that's the case, if that's the case, this story would have a glaring key word that this an idea that would jump out at them because it's a it's a word an idea that has shaped their experience in the desert it's when joseph informs the brothers after he says you're spies and they say no we're not he informs them of his plan he says you will be tested in this way and later he says in this way your words will be tested. This story is the day of testing. And really for the rest of Genesis, or most of the rest of Genesis, it's the test of the brothers. And we're going to be talking about being tested. But tested, oh, being tested, that's, that would be a trigger word maybe for the Israelites. You know, trigger words, words that make you feel really uncomfortable right away when you hear them. Uh, after all, in their early days in the wilderness, when they were desperate for water, 
that grumbled against God and against Moses. And so exasperated, Moses asks why they are testing the Lord. And then he throws a stick into the water, and that stick miraculously turns the water fresh. And Exodus chapter 15 explains that story like this. It says, there the Lord tested them. He said, if you will diligently obey the Lord your God and do what is right in his sight and pay attention to his commandments and keep all his statutes, then all the diseases that I brought on the Egyptians, I will not bring on you. For I, the Lord, am your healer. The Lord tested them with the healing. Interesting. In the very next scene, the people are hungry. So they're thirsty. They cry out to God. Then they're hungry and they cry out to God. And so God says to Moses, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you and the people. Um, I'm sorry, I'm going to rain bread from heaven for you and the people will go out and gather the amount for each day so that I may test them. Will they walk in my law or not? Their life in the wilderness is shaped by tests. In the early days in the desert, every time God meets their needs, he describes it as a test. And after they hear God's voice deliver the Ten Commandments, it's a terrifying experience to them. The people are so afraid, they say, Moses, only you talk to him from now on. And Moses explains it like this. He says, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, so that you do not sin. After they've made their way all through the wilderness and they're on the other side and Moses is giving his final speeches, which are found in the book of Deuteronomy. It's five final speeches. He says this in Deuteronomy chapter eight. He says, remember the whole way by which he, God, has brought you these 40 years through the wilderness so that he might, by humbling you, test you to see if you have it within you to keep his commandments or not. Did you hear that? The entire wilderness journey, 40 years, tons of people dying, like a whole generation turning over, was a test. Yo. God is a God who tests his people, whatever you think of that. He's a God who tests his people. The wilderness actually becomes a symbol of all of life for the Israelites. When Jesus teaches us to pray every day for our daily bread, he's telling us to think of our whole life as a wilderness. In other words, all of life is a test. Dang it. Tests have been a major uh, element of the story in Genesis up to this point, too. Every turning point. What, what was the existence of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden, if not a test? Will they trust me or not? After God called Abraham to leave his land and go to a place that he'd show him and, and promises him descendants and blessing to bless the nations, Abraham is faithful and then not faithful and then faithful again and then he's not faithful and then he fails and then and then he has a big experience and comes back and, and that's Abraham's story. And then there's this radical moment in Genesis chapter 22, which opens with these words, sometime after these things, God tested Abraham. 
Oh, what was that test? Funny you should ask. Um, you know, just a command to take his one son, the promised son that he's been waiting at least 25 years for, his gift from God, and, you know, sacrifice him with a knife on the mountain. That's the last overt test until our chapter today, Genesis 42, the last time testing is mentioned. But in our story, finally, a son of Adam is living as Adam was called to live. He's fully entrusting himself to God and therefore representing God to all creation. He's blessing the nations. The nation of Egypt is radically blessed. The neighboring nations are saved through him. In a sense, Joseph doesn't represent the Israelites in this story. He represents God. So when Joseph puts him through a test, it's representing God. And when the Israelites show up before Joseph, that's what he does. The first thing he does, he tests them. And that's the rest of Genesis. This concept, which hopefully I've proved to you is all over the Bible, is likely unsavory to some of you. Like the plot of every rom-com is somebody putting someone else through a test that they don't know is happening. And so it creates a strain on the relationship, you know, and then they have to prove that, no, I really do love you and all of that. Okay, um, perhaps this idea of God testing us comes across as manipulative or, or petty. Perhaps you remember the surprisingly theologically insightful movie, Bruce Almighty. Early in the film, Bruce, who's played by Jim Carrey, assesses all of the difficulties he's facing as God toying with him, testing him, tests that Bruce can only fail. And so Bruce says, God is a mean kid sitting on an anthill with a magnifying glass, and I'm the ant. And that's how tests can feel. They don't feel loving. Who wants to give their life who wants to live their life feeling like they're always being watched, examined, scrutinized? Thinking of life as a test hardly seems appropriate when you consider an all-knowing God. Presbyterians, you could be forgiven. You're Presbyterians. You could be forgiven for asking, why does God need to test us at all? Doesn't he already know what we'll do? How we'll respond? Isn't God sovereign? Wouldn't a test of me be a test of himself since he's the one who planned all of this? Don't we believe in grace alone through faith alone? Tests seem awfully legalistic, moralistic, Arminianistic, and probably other sticks too. That was a terrible joke. I'm so sorry. I couldn't not write it, though, when I thought of it. <laughs> it's just... <clears throat> All right. So the long story that begins in Genesis 2 and at least goes through 46, but really longer, helps God's people understand what God's up to when he's testing us, the nature of his testing. This is the day of testing. This is part one. In two weeks, we'll do part Two. And so today we're going to look at the tester, the tested, and two test cases, okay? So the tester, 
The tester, of course, in this story is Joseph. And if you are, you know, writing the play, if you're a casting director, casting Joseph as the tester is a genius move. All right. If it's just God putting the brothers through a test, it feels like another day for the Israelites. Yep. He was doing it back then. He's still doing it now. But casting Joseph as the tester allows them and us to cut the tester some slack. Joseph has been through it, y'all. Like he's been through some crazy stuff. He has every reason to mistrust his brothers, right? I mean, last time he met them, last time he was with them, they wanted to kill him and then they changed course and sold him into slavery. How does he know they're not still bent on self-glory, self-interest, willing to destroy someone's life for their well-being? How does he know? When we look at Joseph as the tester, the, the truth is, you guys, the commentators, they are like split about Joseph. Is Joseph doing a good and righteous thing or is he being vindictive to to his brothers i mean his behavior could be seen as bullying he has the power they don't and he can hold it over them but others say there's some shrewd wisdom here this was the only way joseph could humble and soften his brothers for the eventual reconciliation that if you've read ahead is coming what do you think of course, Joseph is a human being. <laughs> He's a real guy. There's probably a bit of both. There's probably a bit of schadenfreude as they're being led into their prison cells. Let's see how you guys like being thrown into prison. At the same time, Joseph has proven to be wise, discerning, brilliant, gifted. He's a godly man. And I think we should probably give him the benefit of the doubt based on what we know about him. He's playing a long-term game of chess against his unwitting brothers. It's easier to win chess when the other person doesn't know they're playing. I get it. But it's for their good. So it's ambiguous. And I think the ambiguity is part of the point as we think about the tester. In almost any real-life test, and I'm talking about those situations where you're being tested and you don't quite know you're being tested and you're not really sure how to pass the test, you know, real-life test. I'm not talking about a classroom where you studied, you know, the study guide. Um, the, in any real-life test, there's a few different ways to interpret it. See my reference to rom-coms. There, there's an anecdote that I, I would assume gets repeated every semester of every year in every seminary in the United States. Here's the anecdote. Maybe this story really happened at some point, but I think professors have just made it their own. And it's about, get, you know, a pastoral search committee. You know, that's the group of people hiring a pastor. And they set up a test. They're bringing in these candidates to be uh, uh, interviewed, and they're in this room, and they put a piece of garbage in the hallway that the candidate has to walk past to get to the room where he's going to be interviewed. And they watch to see if the candidate will be a servant and pick up the trash and, and you know, want to make it a better place and all of that lovely stuff. And, and so, you know, seminary students were terrified, like, look for trash when you're applying for jobs. Okay. Um, so 
all right, it's a test. But it's not neat and clean, right? Like, it neglects the fact that interviews are so nerve-wracking, right? Like, the per maybe the person who feels the greatest sense of call for that job is so nervous. Look, if I'm nervous-focused, if I'm anxiously focused on something, there could be a Mack truck driving through the hallway, and I am not going to see it, much less a banana peel or whatever. Joseph's behavior is ambiguous. Is he messing with them or blessing them? When he sends the money back in their bags, was that meant to bless them with free grain or make them terrified of going back? Will they leave their brother to die in Egypt? Because if they come back, they're going to be accused of being thieves. Just last week, to understand Joseph's rise to power in Egypt, we compared his experience with Jesus' time of testing in the wilderness when Satan comes to Jesus and tempts him three times. The word tempt and the word test are the same word in Greek, right? The tests in the wilderness appear to have Jesus' best interest in mind. Think about it. He's starving. He hasn't eaten for 40 days. Turn the stones to bread. You know, he's supposed to trust God with this challenging mission in front of him. Throw yourself from the temple and see if God will catch you. He's supposed to restore God's glory on the earth. Well, all he has to do is worship, bow down and worship Satan, and all of the earth will be given to him. Seems to have his best interest in mind. See, not all testers are the same. Considering God's tests in the wilderness to the Israelites... Compared with Satan's tests in the wilderness, the lesson may be that testers with your best interest in mind generally administer challenging and difficult tests. Whereas testers who want to use and abuse you administer enticing tests. Tests that seem great. Now, Jesus in the wilderness knows the motive of his tester. He's not fooled. The brothers in Egypt, they have no idea. They have no idea. But we do. And so do the Israelites hearing the story because we get to hear what the all-knowing narrator knows. We know that Joseph is so moved with love for his brothers that he has to turn away and weep. We see his heart for them. If Joseph represents God, the Israelites might look at Joseph and say, he loves his brothers. God loves us. He has our best interest in mind. Old Testament scholar and one of the founders of the Bible Project, Tim Mackey, makes a simple distinction about tests and testers. He says you can usually find there's two types of testers presented in Scripture. One has your best interest in mind, and that helps you interpret the test differently. And the other has your harm in mind, and usually their own best interest. What's tricky is that throughout Scripture, there can be two testers operating in one test. Think about the tree of knowledge of good and evil. God put that tree there as a test, and then the serpent comes and turns it into another kind of test. 
God allowed Satan to torment Job in the book of Job for his ultimate good, but Satan tormented Job for his ultimate harm. Same test, two outcomes. So that's our look at the tester, our first glimpse. What's going on with the tested? All right, the brothers. When Joseph says he's testing his brothers, their response is so familiar. It should be so familiar. You see, here's what they do publicly. Publicly, they posture. No, we're honest, men. It's one of the most ironic sentences in the Bible. We're honest men, they say. We're sons of one father. And then they go on to add to that after saying we're honest men. We're sons of one man in the land of Canaan. The youngest is with our father at this time. And one is no longer alive. But we're honest men. They are literally lying as they try to prove being honest. So honest, you say that you weave a lie into your explanation of how honest you are. And yet, that's pretty familiar. When my character is put to the test, especially when it catches me by surprise and I don't have time to prepare and act really noble, you know, in real life, when my character is put to the test, I posture too. The truth distorts in my own mind, you guys. Like, I want things to sound and look better than they really are. When I'm desperate to self-justify, just like these brothers and possibly some of you, I'm prone to distort the truth. That's their public response, they posture. Their private response is very different. It's guilt. They get thrown in prison and finally they can talk amongst themselves. And here's what they say. Surely we are being punished because of our brother, because we saw how distressed he was when he cried to us for mercy, but we refused to listen. Guys, that was 20 years before. They are still racked with guilt. 20 years later, as soon as one big bad thing happens, the guilt overtakes them. They're sure their chickens have come home to roost. You see, when we experience a test, especially a test of our character, and we don't expect it, and it's something that exposes our character, right underneath our self-justifying exterior is a brutally guilty conscience. You know why we don't like tests? One of the reasons is because we feel like we've already failed. There's no way we can pass. If we pass, it's a fluke. This reminds me of a scene in the Gospel of John. It says, Jesus saw a man who had been blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? Who committed the sin that caused him to be born blind? This man or his parents? Because surely this blindness is a punishment. And surely it's a punishment for some guilt before. The only reason God would allow this man to be blind is a punishment for sin. Because with, presumably without any knowledge of Hinduism, 
But, ju but just like Joseph's brothers, Jesus' disciples have imported the concept of karma into this man and his life. Every detail that happens in life is a balancing of the scales so that they end perfectly leveled. That's karma in a nutshell. Why does this idea of testing offend us and challenge us because we know that we're guilty. So, my fellow wilderness Israelites, we're in a strange position here. We know Joseph is testing them for their good. We see them responding to the test poorly, lying publicly, feeling guilty, knowing they deserve to be punished. Is there any hope of redemption? Well, we need to look at two test cases to understand. You see, the story focuses in on two guys, and I'm going to do them sort of backwards. Jacob, the father, and Reuben, one of the brothers. First, let's look at Jacob. Jacob's not in Egypt. He's not experiencing the test firsthand. Uh, in fact, one of the goals of the test, Joseph wants to be reunited with his father, Jacob. Jacob, is he even being tested? I don't know, but his response is pitiful. He is Bruce Almighty, before the Almighty part. His sons were imprisoned in Egypt. One of them is still imprisoned. They seem to have just barely escaped with their lives. And what does Jacob say at the end of our passage? Everything is against me. It's embarrassing. We watch him all of this happened, and Jacob says, why is all this happening to me? Jacob is reading the story as if he is the main character. He thinks it's about him. He's the center of the universe. Well, the reason Bruce Almighty is such a great movie, and I'm actually recommending it, is the test that God puts Bruce through proves to Bruce that not being the center of the universe is the best thing for him. Jacob's liberation has only just begun. Several years ago, I was talking with a friend whose brother had gone missing in the mountains, and there was a fear for his life. She loved him very much. It was a very tender moment. And as we were talking, and she was understandably feeling just so scared and sad and tender, she said, I am not sure that I could believe in a God who would let this happen. And I, I get it. I get that sentiment in the moment. As I've reflected on that very understandable response, an uncomfortable thought has followed. This would not have been a gracious response in the moment. If you're ever in that moment with someone, this is not a gracious response. Okay, I understand that. But... The day before her brother went missing, the day he was missing, and for many days after that, well, I don't know, thousands of children around the world died of starvation and preventable disease. Um, that very day, people were tortured and executed for their faith or their race or, or their political commitments. And yet, blind to all of that, this one moment of pain, it's come home to her. She's not sure she can believe in a God who would let this happen. It, it was She was testing God. I won't believe in you unless you have him come home 
safe. Her life had been pretty comfortable until her brother went missing. There are often, remember, two testers in each test. The tempter, I think, wants to turn us inward. He wants to make us think it's all about ourselves, and that's what happens with Jacob. He wants to make us say, how could God do this to me? Actually, all of the brothers say that. How could God do this to us? But God has bigger and better things in store, and that brings us to the second test case. Reuben. Guys, if you've been tracking with this story, the, the, the story has not been kind to Reuben so far. He's the oldest brother of the twelve. Uh, at some point, frustrated with his dad or for whatever reason, he tries to throw a coup and take over family leadership by, you know, sleeping with one of Jacob's wives. Not Reuben's mom, but one of the other moms. When the brothers want to kill Joseph, Reuben doesn't want them to kill him. He says, throw him in a pit. And they kind of do that, but really they basically ignore him. He's, he's presented in an embarrassing light in that story, mostly impotent. The brothers sell Joseph off when Reuben is looking the other way. In today's story, Reuben gets on his high horse when they're all in prison, announcing, I told you so. If you would just listen to me, we wouldn't be in this mess. Guys, no one likes that guy, right? Nobody does. Not in ancient Israel and not today. But then they have a long journey back to the land of Canaan. Something happens in Reuben. He knows Benjamin is the favored son. He knows the birthright will likely pass Reuben by and probably go to Benjamin he could try to work the angles and change that. Instead, in the face of his brothers and his father failing their tests, Reuben is the first one to give a shocking response. Reuben said to his father, you may put my two sons to death if I do not bring Benjamin back to you. Put him in my care and I will bring him back to you. What a transformation. Reuben is willing to sacrifice his own future. His sons are his future in order to save Simeon and frankly, to save the family. He is a father who offers his son to save the world. Did you hear that? He is a father who offers his son to save the world. Here's what I want you to hear about tests today. If, the, if so far you're like, what's the point, Mike? Like tests are hard and we're not really sure what's going on. What's the point? Here's what I want you to hear about tests. It's not a question of whether Reuben passed the test, but rather a question of whether the test did its work in Reuben. That's what tests are about. They are not about our performance at the end. They're about revealing something throughout. Proverbs chapter 17 says it like this. The crucible is for refining silver. The furnace is for gold. Likewise, the Lord tests hearts. Now think about that for a second. Think about that. The silver is there. The gold is there. The Lord has done his work and put it there. The crucible reveals it. The furnace reveals it. 
Reuben is being revealed by the fire. When the Lord is testing us, it's for our good. But will Jacob accept the offer? We don't know at the end of this chapter. Will mercy and sacrifice change his heart? Perhaps that's the greatest test in this passage. The test of Jacob at the very end. Will he send Benjamin or not? And it goes unanswered. In the same way, friends, your walk to this table this morning will be your greatest test this week. I know, it, I know it may seem rote and normal. It may seem like something that you do. But right here, the Father has offered his Son for your salvation. And he's asking you to trust your entire self to him. Jacob had to ask, can I trust Reuben? Do I believe that he would do this? Do I believe he will bring Benjamin and Simeon back safe? Can he risk his treasured son, Benjamin? The question to you is, can you trust Jesus offering himself like this to you? He offers you everything at the cost of nothing. And here's the, here's the catch. That means you owe him everything afterward. Will you trust him with your life? This test, it reveals us. So, put your books away and don't look at your neighbor's desk. On the night that he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread and when he had given thanks for it, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Every time we eat this bread or drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Friends, here he is offered to you. Let's pray. Lord, we're not ready for this test. We never have been and we never will be. But you, you are. You are. And so, Lord, I thank you for that. We come empty-handed. We come with no answers. We come with failure. And we receive your success your perfect score. Thank you for offering it to us in Jesus' name. Amen.